Welcome to DAC Beechcroft's White Paper White Light Lawcast series. My name's Mike Bell and I'm Chair of Two Trusts in London, Croydon Health Services in South London and Barton Havering and Redbridge Hospitals in North East London. Over the coming series, we're going to be joined by a range of really interesting leaders from across the health and care sector. We've chosen to call these podcasts White Paper White Light because we hope to bring together experiences from across the spectrum and focus that white light on key themes in the white paper. We're also going to make sure that we take time in each podcast to refract that white light so that each colour of the rainbow is visible to test propositions and examine the white paper against the challenge of health inequalities and the broader diversity agenda. The first episode of our white paper series is focused upon issues of primacy of place within the white paper and I'm joined today by Charlotte Burnett, a partner at DAC Beechcroft. Charlotte. Hi Mike, Um, as you just said I'm a partner here at DAC Beechcroft and I focus on integration, health policy change and implementation. And I'd like to introduce Rob Walsh, who's Chief Executive of North East Lincolnshire Council and North East Lincolnshire CCG. Hi, Mike. Good to be here. Yep, uh, Chief Exec of the Global Authority and the CCG in North East Lincolnshire, and we've been on a very interesting and quite lengthy health and social care integration journey. And finally, Jonathan McShane, Integrated Care Convener at City and Hackney CCG in the heart of London. Hi, Mike, and uh, thanks for having me. So, yes, I'm... The integrated care convener working across the system in in City and Hackney as we um, work towards becoming an integrated care partnership. And I was also a a councillor and cabinet member in Hackney Council for many years. So I think I I bring both an NHS and a local government perspective to the discussion. Thank you. We'll move on to the session then. If I could kick off with... um... The, 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 the issue of place and geography, because the white paper talks a lot about place, and we know that that can vary hugely by population size, by the geography covered. Um, Jonathan, for you, what does, what does place mean to you, and how have you developed your sense of place to date so far in Hackney? So I think for me, place is um, it's about a sense of belonging. So do the people in that area who live there, the people who work in the institutions in that area, do they feel an emotional connection um, to the the geography? And so if you look at some of the changes that are happening in the NHS, there are levels of the system where that feels more real um, than others. So City and Hackney is an emerging integrated care partnership within the North East London system. So Hackney clearly has a very strong sense of place, perhaps a stronger sense of place than other boroughs in London. Um, the city is obviously a very different um, beast, um, has a very small population, although lots of people commute um, to the city to work. Um, however, City and Hackney have worked together for um, a very long time and built up really strong relationships and really good trust. So for people working within the system, City and Hackney makes a lot of sense. I think for residents, it probably makes less sense. And then if you move up to the northeast London level, there will be lots of um, reasons in terms of the way NHS services are organised, that that's a sensible unit. But I don't really think anyone who lives in the one of the eight boroughs that make up the North East London ICS feel a sense of belonging um, to North East London. 
So I think we, you know, we need to be honest about where a place is meaningful and, um, and think about how we can harness that to achieve the things we want to achieve in terms of health and care. That's, I think that's, that's helpful. And thinking about what, when we're talking about place, we're doing it for purpose, aren't we? We're, we're trying to make health and care better for our populations, more joined up. I wonder if, Jonathan, there are any particular examples from Hackney that you'd be keen to share with us about where that closer working, that place-based system has removed some of the barriers to or made, made services feel more joined up for, for the population. I think in, in City and Hackney, we've been working at this uh, for a long time. So the, you know, what we're now calling integrated care partnerships is a way of working that we've been striving towards for at least five or six years. And I guess in terms of you know, where we've got to, what we've, what we've really established, I think, are um, some of the structures that are necessary to make this happen. We've built um, really strong relationships, which I think are going to be essential going forward if we want to do things um, differently. And we've also established some vehicles through which we can deliver these more integrated services. And I think a particularly interesting part of that would be um, neighbourhoods. So in common with other places, we've divided City and Hackney into eight neighbourhoods that are coterminous with primary care networks. And I think what's going to be interesting is with those emerging neighbourhoods, having a, a really detailed conversation with the local people within them about what would make sense to them in terms of how we deliver services in, in a more joined up way. So integrating various parts of the NHS, but also integrating those NHS services with social care and the broader council offer. And I guess the risk is that with any sort of um, devolution or thinking about doing things at a, a, a more local level, is you get to a certain level and then you stop. And you know, it's the, the old joke about devolution, that everyone thinks the level above it is um, totally out of touch and the level below it is completely incompetent. And I think we're trying to avoid that. So we want to set some um, big ambitions and a vision for what integration looks like, but we really want to draw up from the, the different experience of those different neighbourhoods and, and the different ambitions of people living and working in those neighbourhoods um, in terms of how we um, finally shape service delivery. So it, it feels to me that if you're going to make this happen in, in a real way, having those structures, having those relationships and then developing some vehicles feel like prerequisites. And I guess the anxiety is that in some parts of the country that haven't been working at this for as long as we have in City and Hackney, um, you might try and integrate everything and come up with new initiatives when you don't have those foundations in place. Charlotte, are there, are there good examples for, for you in terms of um, uh, the ways in which integrated, integrating a place removes barriers? Yes. For me, in all the collaboration arrangements that I've worked on over the years, building trust in relationships is absolutely crucial. It's easier to collaborate where these are present from the outset of projects, but I would absolutely say that these are the best areas to focus on to break down barriers. Having trust to take steps to integrate based on strong foundations and particularly with patients at the centre of your vision is usually goes a long way to removing barriers. I wonder if Rob would like to add, add any more on that because Rob, I think you've been at this longer than anybody. I think the, the integration programme started in 2007 in, in Lincolnshire and I, I know certainly back in 2007 I was still... 
um, wandering around London doing worse world-class commissioning assurance and the thought of place was probably nowhere on the agenda. So Rob, do you want to give some examples from um, your part of the world in terms of the, the, the real tangible benefits of place-based working? Okay, um, personal experience, I think coterminosity of geography helped from day one. Um, and when our journey started in 2007, we formed the Care Trust at the time. Coterminosity was then actually the driver, both uh, politically and organisationally. Um, fast forward to 2012, all of the changes brought in by the Act at that point, the advent of CCGs. We'd already delegated into the NHS at that point our, our adult social care commissioning and provision anyway. Uh, the commitment politically and, and, and clinically was to continue that relationship with the CCG. But then, then there was a shift at that point. It really was. So apart from the fact that we are sharing the same population and, the, and geography, what's the point of all of this? And it became pretty self-evident before anyone was talking about the, the wider determinants of health. That if you think about the role of an upper tier council or any council actually and if you think about the role of the nhs if, if 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 there's one thing we need to do together and we can and should do together whatever legislation says whatever guidance says or indeed whatever policy says it's to serve the same population in the right way and to improve their health it's about having a conversation about the economy about skills about housing um, and, and and improving people's quality of life and running through all of that is the public health stream of course and I think what, what politicians and clinical leaders at the time latched onto and still have as we continue through to the white paper and, and the present day is that if you've got any chance at all of making a difference in the long term to the prospects in both health, economic and environmental terms to your population, then it's about partnership. It's about trust. It's certainly about big anchor institutions working together, statutory bodies, and no one part of that system can do it on its own. It's not about the council. It's not about the NHS. It's not about the voluntary sector. It's about all of us working together. And what started out as a journey about how do we deal with adult social care in Northeast Lincolnshire way back in 2007 quickly became actually how do we look to how do we look towards addressing some of the deep-seated challenges in the health and well-being of the population. And fast forward even further, forgive me, the last 12 to 14 months and all of this COVID stuff has really proved the concept. One set of decisions, one team at the top, politicians and clinical leaders talking together, um, agreeing on the same things, disagreeing on the same things, having a conversation and shaping a response and a model that I think can stand the test of both the white paper and where we should be going in local place-based partnership working terms. That's really helpful, Rob, and I think you've, you've shifted us nicely onto that broader issue of um, health inequalities. I know from my experience in Croydon, we've found that the, that the agenda around tackling health inequalities was actually the unifying issue which got us all around the table in the first place. The one, one of the few benefits of COVID has been that it's actually put the health inequalities agenda really high um, in terms of a priority for people to tackle. And I think that that integration between health and social care is really vital. Jonathan, I wondered from your perspective, working in an area like Hackney, which is now incredibly mixed in terms of areas of real affluence, but also still areas of very sharp deprivation, how the joined up place-based working is contributing to that, those wider, tackling those wider determinants of health that Rob has identified. 
Yeah, and I, I think you're right that, you know, if something good has come out of COVID, it is that it is, you know, shown a spotlight on, on health inequalities. I know that in the in the public health profession, there's a slight anxiety that um, there's a huge focus on public health as a profession and the skills that they bring to, to a system. And there is a, a much greater understanding of the impact underlying inequalities can have on people's health outcomes. But there's an anxiety that, you know, when we get over the worst of this, that, you know, business returns um, to normal. And you know, I think as a, as a profession, um, public health is thinking about how do we uh, build on the improved relationships um, that the public health profession has within its local system, the higher profile it has with the local community to start to tackle some of those uh, underlying drivers of um, poor health and well-being. So that it, I, I think it's, it's great that um, people are talking about health inequalities more than ever, um, but I don't think we should take it as a given that without real effort, um, the agenda will move on, um, move on to other things. Um, I, and, I, and you're right, you know, Hackney is a place of, you know, extreme contrasts in terms of um, uh, poverty and, and wealth. And I think that health inequalities does feel like a, a really good way of bringing the various parts of the system together with a shared purpose. Again, if COVID has taught us something, it's that one of the ways to help teams work incredibly effectively together is to have a very clear shared shared purpose. And it would be great if, health, if tackling health inequalities fulfilled that that role going forward. So, it, it, I, so whilst I think that's useful, I think if we're talking about the white paper and we're talking about structures, there needs to be some real clarity over what happens where, because I think there is a danger that people forget that there are existing structures in place. So, for example, health and wellbeing boards that take a much broader look than just the NHS, the NHS and social care in terms of what drives the health and well-being of local people. There's a real danger of people forgetting that and trying to tackle all of these things within the partnership structures, whether that's an ICS or an ICP level. And I think as a system, being really clear about, um, and it doesn't matter what you decide, but you need to decide. Um, in the city in Hackney, we're very clear that the health and well-being boards are about a long-term, broad vision of how you tackle um, inequalities. And the ICP is about delivering the health and social care component of that. And I think if you don't have that clarity at the beginning, then there's a danger of having the same conversations in different places and no one really owning it. And I think if we're serious about health inequalities, um, you know, we need to own it. When people make commitments, they need to be held to those and we need to track progress. And I'm not sure we've done that um, rigorously enough in the past. I think we, it's, it's worth sticking with this agenda around health inequalities because clearly the NHS has probably done equality quite well in terms of equal access. It hasn't done equitable access and it certainly hasn't provided services with a focus on, upon redressing uh, other injustices. And if we want to do that, we need to move much more to a system that is about meeting needs rather than managing demand. One of the potential opportunities in the white paper and the restructure is to move to a much more population health management focused service, which is about anticipating and meeting need rather than about responding to demand or managing demand. And I wondered, Charlotte, if we could kick off with you on that in terms of how far 
different place-based systems are looking at population health management, particularly that wider data that local authorities have, which the NHS doesn't have. You know, we, we, we can be fantastic on episodic patient-based data, but we don't have that, that depth of understanding of the populations we're serving, which local authorities may have. Do, do you have some good examples from around the country, Charlotte, that you'd like to share? I think discussions on moves towards population-based health management have become much more prevalent in recent years. There's certainly a lot of data held by local authorities which may be helpful in this field. I was talking to a client the other day about a lack of Wi-Fi availability in a council tower block and how the data was starting to show that connectivity during the pandemic could really help people to access care. Whilst legislation may not go far enough to respond to the issues such as the need for Wi-Fi, for, to improve population-based health management. Understanding the issues is definitely the first step. So it's moving in the right direction. And for me, local authority data is a key piece in the jigsaw. Thank you for that, Charlotte. Rob, you've, you've been using local authority data um, for more than a decade in terms of informing commissioning decisions across health and care. Are the, what are the key advantages that you see in that particularly in terms of identifying what might have otherwise been unmet needs? I think firstly, um, better, more informed, never never perfectly informed, of course, better, more informed and increasingly evidence-based decisions. Um, I'm an idealist, so I probably have my glass very, very, very half full when I say that. There are still some challenges in that space. I think um, in terms of the planning around health and care in the patch and and that the proximity of the two organisations I'm responsible for, bringing literally even putting the two teams who perform the same function in the same building to have a conversation, notwithstanding which badge they wear, the fact that they are focused on data, intelligence and analytics, are focused concerning the same population. Now, if they were in separate buildings, as they were for many years, they wouldn't have had the conversation. That's despite what the law may or may not enable them to do. I think the things we've done locally have been really, the more I reflect on it, have been the simple things. We've not made it too complicated. We've, we've worked with the, the legislation as it's allowed us to work. We've worked with the fact that we have a, a, a manageable geography in terms of bringing two organisations very closely together to operate health and to well, host, not operate a health and care system in the patch. And that's enabled conversations uh, soft as well as hard integration to happen within teams to inform planning, commissioning and delivery. It's not been perfect. I think the economic strategy that's emerged in this part of the world over the last five years, if we were doing it now, would be even better informed from a health and well-being perspective. But there are aspects of that health and well-being sort of approach to economic growth we've taken over the last three or four years, in particular parts of our borough where we've got some very deprived areas and challenged areas, where the ability to have a conversation in one space and in one building, literally, about the data and the information that's coming into our into our inboxes within the bounds of the law has enabled us to make decisions quickly and inform clinicians and politicians to take a direction that hitherto they probably wouldn't have taken and take a bit more risk too. Thanks. And Jonathan, you'll have a particular perspective as a former councillor in, in Hackney and now with a CCG hat on. I wonder if, if you'd like to sort of comment in, on the opportunities for bringing, bringing those two pieces of intelligence together and how that might shape a better system. 
I think there's there's kind of two things. So one of the things I've noticed um, around COVID being being a really good example and around vaccines is the fact that we have structures that bring together um, senior officers and elected members from local authorities with NHS colleagues. I think it's meant there has been a much more fruitful discussion around things like how do you ensure um, good vaccine take up? Because I think that people who work in local authorities and elected members um, inevitably have a much more detailed understanding um, of their local population and you know w where are people likely to find it acceptable to access a certain service things that might not seem logical to someone who perhaps hasn't hasn't lived in in that area for some time are explained to them by people who just have a real feel for um, local people, what they want and how they go about their business. So there's that kind of informal, softer intelligence that's incredibly important, particularly in a borough as, as diverse as um, Hackney and obviously the, the city has a lot of diversity too. And then the second thing is is um, what you we were talking to Rob about, which is you know what we do with data. And I think we're we're all just scratching the surface of that. And I think there's a danger of thinking that doing population health management is you know, getting a license for one of the software packages that um, helps you analyze this information. And actually there's, there's, there's probably a lot more to it than that. It's a, it's a way of thinking that says um, there's so much um, insight, both um, sort of the anecdotal softer stuff, and there's insight from hard data that we need to bring together from across health and social care, drawing in information from voluntary and community groups, what we're getting from schools, and using that in much smarter ways to get a real sense of not just of you know what are the needs of local people, where are the opportunities for us to do better. So I think um I think everywhere really we're we're scratching the surface of that. And as I say, it's about a, it's about a way of thinking and recognizing the value of each other's insights as much as it's about the you know the technical software package that you use in order to crunch the data. And Jonathan, are the eight localities that you, you talked about um, within Hackney contributing to, to that data? Are they providing sort of eyes and ears on the ground and informing decisions at a, at a place level? I mean, it's, it's too early for, the, for that to happen. And the public health team in City and Hackney and public health team has always covered both. It has been really good in terms of supporting uh, the neighbourhoods as they were and now the um, clinical directors of the primary care networks by giving them effectively little mini GSNAs of their area, which then local GPs and people working in council services in those areas can use to frame a discussion um, about um, needs in that place. So I think the information is flowing in that direction, but what we haven't established yet are the proper structures to ensure that there's also a flow of information so that decision making that's taken at a city and happy level and reflects information we're getting um, from those local places. One, one thing I would add, just to very briefly go back to the, you know, were talking about the primacy of place. One of the things we decided on early with our neighbourhoods before primary care networks came along was that the naming of them was really important. And because when you divide a borough into eight, it's you know the geography isn't necessarily that neat. It's not like some um, county councils where there are some obvious of towns that could um, make up um, neighbourhoods. And so in the end, we decided to name them all after parks in Hackney, um, and that that helped because the boundaries sometimes crossed a couple of um, 
neighborhood, neighborhoods that people would recognize and describe as, as where they come from, but also it reflected the huge pride people in Hackney have in their parks and green spaces. And I think some people maybe thought that was a bit gimmicky, but it's amazing how quickly people have really embraced that and talk about their work using, you know, I, I work in the London Fields neighborhoods, uh, or I, um, you know, I'm a GP who leads the Crystal Park Primary Care Network, and that's been incredibly effective. That, that's, a, that's a really nice example. Um, Rob, you, you sort of highlighted the particular opportunities around anchor institutions. Um, clearly one of the impacts of COVID beyond the health impact is going to be the, the, the longer term economic impact. We know that it's going to be probably not before the end of 2023 that we recover pre-COVID economic activity. With that in mind, what do you think that place-based health and care can do to mitigate the, um, the impact of that economic decline? So I think, again, I can only speak for the place in which I, I live and work. Um, there's, a, there's a coalescence growing around not just the concept of place. We've been talking about place for many years here, and I'm sure in many other places too. But the impact that COVID is having and the experience of the last year particularly has demonstrated that actually, when it really matters, organisations and various parts of the system can step up and work together, put differences to one side and focus on the three or four things that really matter. And I think the three or four, maybe more things that will really matter over the next 36 months will, will be all centred on on economic recovery in its broadest sense. So when I talk economic recovery in its broadest sense, I mean and include the health and well-being of the, of the population. I mean certain sectors of that population. And I think that the bigger employers um, and so-called anchor institutions, again, not just the local authority. The local authority has a really important role to play in terms of convening and facilitating, but so does you know, a huge um, acute trust that employs thousands of people. Who are a lot of whom are from this patch and live and, and, and experience everyday life in this patch. How are we working together to focus on, for example, um, saying or, or articulating a really, a really ambitious workforce development approach over the next 12, 24, 36 months that encourages people to think about coming to live and work here, notwithstanding some of the challenges we've just experienced. The council saying that on its own or the acute trust saying that on its own or any other part of the system saying that on its own won't have the same impact. What, what sort of place and behaviours are we creating within our anchor institutions that are consistent? What's the message? Some of the huge announcements made the other week in the budget that affect this part of the world, the Humber region particularly, aren't just about the economy. They're about opportunity. They're about amb ambition and they're about aspiration. And, and really cornerly, I suppose, they're about hope. And if a Humber free port, for example, is going to generate up to 7,000 skilled jobs in the decarbonisation space, we want local, healthy, ambitious people to have a chance to get those jobs. Now, if they're, if they're living in, in, in conditions that aren't, uh, aren't, aren't sort of supporting their future health and well-being, or if they're not accessing those opportunities because they don't know how our local system works, because the system isn't joined up and organisations aren't talking to each other, again, I go back to my idealistic approach to life, I suppose, the more we talk, the more we focus on the same or similar suite of priorities and outcomes, the more prospect we have of making a difference to that person's life and his or her chance of getting one of those 7,000 jobs. That's what I mean by 
anchor institutions working together in a place and as part of a system in that health and care space to support the economic drive we need to make happen here. A bit wordy, a bit lengthy, but that's the conversation we're having. So if you're the boss of the college, you're the boss of the hospital, you're the boss of the council, you're the boss of the CCG, you're the boss of Associated British Ports, operating the largest port by tonnage in the UK, in this part of the world, we should all be able to be in a room having a similar conversation about what we need to achieve together and what our contribution, however big or small, is to make that happen. That's place-based system leadership, and that's what we're trying to achieve here for the benefit of local people. Rob, that, that's, that, that's really, really inspiring. Um, I know from my, the four boroughs I serve in South London and North East London, um, we've got amongst the lowest number of graduates in our, in our population um, within London. Um, we, within the NHS and with our partners in local government, are focusing very much on the skills agenda, not just in relation to health and care, but broader than that. Jonathan, I wondered if there were similar initiatives in, in um, Hackney in the city. Yeah, there are. And I, th I think sometimes councils sort of lead the way, partly because um, skills and um, regeneration and economic development are more clearly you know, within their um, set of responsibilities, but also because you know, they need to respond to what local people want to see. So when times are tough, they want to know that the council is you know, straining every sinew to help people get access to good quality work, for example. So Hackney Council has massively expanded its uh, apprenticeship programme in recent years. It's developed a programme that gives the, the sort of equivalent of internship opportunities, but paid London living wage to um, young people who maybe don't have the sort of networks that other people um, living in London might have, where their you know their friend works in a law firm and they can they can get you some work experience there. So how do you how do you um, level the playing field a bit there by giving those sorts of opportunities um, to everyone? So I I think councils have always led the way in this space, and I think that there's a huge opportunity for the NHS to do even more. So, you know, when, when we talk about anchor institutions, I think we sometimes look to um, America where, you know, things like um, the Cleveland Clinic, who have led the way in this space for a long time. And we look at some of the really ambitious things they've done. So I always hear about um, one of the big um, health companies in um, America realizing five years into the future, their laundry contract was going to be coming up and using that time to work with local people to set up a social enterprise that was then able to bid for the contract. And that's amazing, but it feels that there's some there's some low-hanging fruit that um, working with local government, the NHS, could pick over the next few years. So are your local anchor um, institutions in the NHS, have they done a proper audit of who works for them and in what roles and where, you know, where the where you find it really difficult to recruit and how does that map onto the local population? Are there parts of the population that don't seem to get opportunities in your institution? And can you work with the council or others who might have greater insight or with the local voluntary and community sector to find out why that is and set yourself a target to improve that? Because we, we know that services delivered by people who reflect the local population um, are often better services. So there's a there's a um, quality angle for the, for the NHS as well as a, an angle in terms of um, in improving opportunities for everyone in a local area. So I think with I think the, the anchor work is really interesting, but you know we need to do some of that basic stuff first before we start thinking about 
you know, setting up new social enterprises to bid for opportunities in the future. But I, I think the confidence that comes from seeing what you can do around things like local recruitment in a relatively short space of time will, will allow people to think bigger in, in the medium and long term. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, and Charlotte, what, what do you think the, the traction is for the anchor institution agenda in the rest of the country? Um, ha- has it caught the imagination or is it one of those boxes that people feel that they're currently required to tick but um, haven't necessarily committed to? So on this, I think that it really depends on where you look. Some organisations see themselves as anchors and others aren't quite there yet. Usually, from my experience, anchors have a much wider reach than only the place. And I think the challenge for them is balancing their focus, particularly at this time during COVID. Mm. The the white paper is going to be, um, there's going to be lots of debate about the accountabilities and where they rest in, um, as we begin unpicking the white paper and it begins its uh, parliamentary passage. The NHS as a service accountable to Parliament has never been very comfortable with local democratic accountability. And the white paper suggests parallel NHS and wider partnership bodies at an ICS level. How do you think we can marry the national accountabilities of the NHS with the local accountabilities and the democratic accountabilities, particularly the bit that makes, I think, many of us nervous, is the prospect of changes of administration at a local level? And Rob, I know you've gone through this. You, I think you've had a, at least one, maybe two changes in the political control of the local authority since you, you embarked upon your partnership journey. I wondered if you could say a little bit about how that may have impacted upon integration. Um, one or two, yeah. <laughs> I think I think when, when I'm asked um, about our, our, our story here in North East Links over the years and how we've maintained the progress um, despite the odd bump, um, there, are, there is something really, really important and significant about the fact that a number of the actors, for want of a better phrase, around now were also around in 2007 when we formed what was then called the Care Trust Plus. That includes some of the leading politicians who are with us now, as well as leading you know, um, execs. Um, I, was a, I was just a humble junior functionary at the time. I was just the council's lawyer. Um, But there are a number of us who were around then that have been on this journey together. And I suppose it's that length. I mean, the the analogy I always use is the Greater Manchester journey around, which led to the big devolution deal a few years ago, the Association of Greater Manchester Authorities that led to the Greater Manchester Combined Authority and so on. That didn't happen overnight. And for me, in North East Links, it's never really been about politics, actually, from where I've been sat and what I've observed and what I've seen. It's been about trust. It's been about strength of relationships. And it's been about really genuinely focusing on what you want to achieve for the area. There's, I always use this phrase a lot. There's no one around the table that I'm accountable to, be that in the CCG world or the local government world, that doesn't want our economy to grow in the right way. In other words, to benefit local people, local businesses. There's no one in, in that, that, that space that I'm accountable to that doesn't want our communities to thrive, prosper, be resilient and independent. It's what you do underneath to make that happen and bind people together. And we've managed to navigate through that. The odd bump in the road, yes, maybe a few more to come. But the, the focus and, and, the, and the commitment to the area is what has bound people together through, through thick and thin over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, um, despite some of the changes both in clinical leadership and, and in political leadership. Everybody genuinely wants the same thing. 
and the health and care system is so integrated now anyway, you have to work together. You can't separate the roles. Jonathan, did you want to say anything? I, mean, I know you, you're in a locality which probably hasn't changed political um, identity for over a century, but you may have some, some perspectives on balancing the local democratic accountability with the national um, accountabilities of the NHS. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything Rob has said. I think that um, there's a lot more that um, unites people in terms of their um, ambition for local places than, than um, divides them. And what, what presents the biggest challenges is actually changes in personnel rather than changes in um, political stripes. So there, there is a challenge when you've built a strong relationship of trust with the chief executive of an organisation when they move on somewhere else and someone else comes in. Not that they won't share your your broad ambition but they might have a different way of working or, or a different focus and and ensuring that you sort of onboard new people and explain to them the history of of what we've done in this place and what we're aiming for and how we um, go about things i think is is incredibly important to try and get them as excited about it as the um, existing group of people is so th that feels that feels more of a challenge than the politics i think that the the democratic accountability of the NHS that, that may emerge in some places through ICPs and place-based partnerships is really interesting. And I think that that tension between people wanting a national service with you know, the same access to services everywhere in the country, with wanting to deliver things in a slightly different way to meet the needs of local people, um, is always going to be there. So a sense of the, the what, the entitlement and the expectation being a national thing, but the how it's delivered, there being some real flexibility to do that differently locally. And as I mentioned before, some flexibility where possible to do it a bit differently, even within relatively small boroughs, because there are different um, neighbourhoods or primary care networks, or there are different communities or different age groups who maybe want to access services in different ways. So trying to be as flexible as possible in terms of the how, while sticking, obviously, to the, the, the what people are entitled to and should expect from a national health service. But that I, I'm not as worried as some people are about local politicians being involved in decisions around um, the NHS. I mean, my experience in, in recent years, both as a councillor and now um, working within the system, is that people understand the pressures, they understand the need to operate within um, a tight financial framework and a tight regulatory framework. And as long as they feel involved in the discussion, um, they're comfortable um, taking, you know, making a decision jointly that isn't necessarily easy politically. And I guess one of the things that a decade of austerity has, has taught local authorities is they've, they've sadly had to become really used to having difficult conversations with the public about priorities and, and what you do when there's ever increasing need, but um, you know, the, the money is, is flat or falling. And so there's probably some um, lessons they can share with NHS colleagues about how you level with the public and how you talk to them about the need to prioritise and how you do that in a in a fair and open way. Thank you for that. Um, as we move towards the end of this first episode, I wondered if each of you would like to identify one or two things that you think are the essential drivers for developing a successful place-based model of care, and just uh, any reflections on whether you think the white paper will help or inhibit that. So if I could kick off with you, um, Charlotte. So I would. 
uh, I would say that it's trust and relationships. So make sure that those relationships which you've been developing for a long time and you've nurtured um, really are there and you can have those robust conversations. In terms of the white paper, um, I think a permissive regime which looks like what is what we're going to get is the way forward. It's nice to see that actually much of what is in the white paper is policy which has been developed and built on over a number of years and I think we've broadly seen consultation responses to the NHS England consultation that preceded the white paper have been supportive of this direction of travel. So for me, it would be trust and relationships between organisations within place and um, not overly prescriptive in terms of the legislation that we get. Um, Some guidance would be, I think, helpful in terms of general direction, but with an allowance that where there is a reasonable rationale, places can explain why they perhaps shouldn't follow it. Thank you. And Rob? I'd echo the trust and relationships comments. Um, I'd also say um, be very clear from the outset about what you agree on and be equally clear from the outset about what you disagree on, because there are ways in which both of those things can and should be managed transparently, openly, and collegially. And in terms of the white paper, I think on its face, huge opportunity. If it's translated into legislation that is permissive, does give the space for local leading institutions to work and collaborate in ways that I've described earlier, huge opportunity. And from our perspective here in Northeast Links, if that is the case, then everything we've been trying to achieve over the last 15 years could come to closer fruition if the legislation reflects the spirit and intent of the white paper. And Jonathan? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd echo all the all the things about um, trust and relationships. I think finding the time to understand each other's organisations and the pressures you're, um, you know, the other leaders in the system are facing, I think, even though everyone's busy, that's that's a, a really sound investment and it's always appreciated. I think that there's going to be a real test in terms of particularly when the ICS has become statutory, their relationship with ICPs and place-based systems. And I think if they're going to succeed, they need to see the role of the ICS as a, you know, being an enabling structure that succeeds when the ICPs and the places succeed. So how does it enable them to do things the right way for their place and how do they celebrate those successes? Because there's always a risk when you set up a a, a structure at a certain level that they try and find things to do at that level and there will be many things that make sense to deliver at a northeast London or a Coventry and Warwickshire level but there will also be things that should never be done at that level and the ICS needs to resist that temptation and understand that you know its success is in fact going to be delivered at place level and um, if it enables that to happen then the ICS will be successful too. And I guess from my point of view I would echo everything that's been said. I am anxious that we we may be starting by building governance structures, whereas I think we need to be starting from relationships. We need to be doing something. We then build the governance structures, and hopefully we begin to create a virtuous circle where the relationships lead to more action, which leads to refining the governance, which then broaden the relationships, leading to more action, and so on. In our next podcast, we'll be talking about provider collaboratives. 
there's some concern that as we move, as we dismantle the current commissioning infrastructure and strategic and funding decisions which could have been and we thought were likely to be devolved to place may end up being devolved to provider collaboratives in part or wholly in a way that excludes place. Are there any concerns that you've got around the provider collaborative agenda that you'd like to share um, as we prepare for the next session? Rob? I think spirit and intent of provider collaboratives positive. I think the number that may emerge in any one part of any one geography challenge, joining the dots, governance all over the place if we're not careful um, is a challenge and potentially a risk. Take a joint committee model surrounded by other joint committees in local government parlance as an example. That's a potential issue. Um, managing all of that, it could become a very crowded and, and unavoidably bureaucratic space. I go back to the earlier point about relationships, trust and building confidence in each other and agreeing what your priorities are from the outset, whether you're a, whether you're a system leader, a provider collaborative, a local authority or, a, or an ICS. I think it comes back to those very basic starting points. Thank you all very much for being part of today's um, session. Uh, I, I hope you found it um, interesting. I've certainly learned a lot from um, my colleagues. So thank you all very much.